This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. The Cosmic Computer by H. Beam Piper. Chapter 17 there were no bands or speeches when they came in this time. A lot of contragravity vehicles circled widely around the spaceport, but except for a few news service cars, the police were keeping them back of a two-mile radius around the landing pits. A couple of gunboats were making tight circles above, and on the dock were more vehicles and a horde of police guards. When Rodney Maxwell came across the bridge from the dock after they opened the airlocks, he was followed by a dozen Barton Massara private police, as villainous-looking a collection of ruffians as Khan had ever seen. He was wearing a new suit, with a waist-length jacket instead of the long coat he usually wore, and there was a holstered automatic on each hip. In Litchfield, he never carried more than one pistol and Storacenda was supposed to be an orderly place where nobody needed to go armed. More than anything else, that told Khan approximately what had been going on while he had been on Koshai. "'Ship guard,' his father told Eves Jackmont. "'All your crew can come off. They'll take care of things. Get your people in that troop carrier over there. Everybody will stay at Interplanetary Building. None of the hotels are safe.' not even the Ritz-Gartner. And be sure everybody's well-armed when they come off the ship." Jack Mott nodded. "'I know the drill. I've been in Podoberth on Venus and Scorvan on Loki. Any law we want, we make for ourselves.' "'That's about it. I'll see you there. Con, I wish you'd come with me. Somebody here wants to talk to you.' He wondered if his mother, or Flora, had come to Storsenda. When he asked his father as they crossed onto the dock, there was a brief twinge of pain in Rodney Maxwell's face. No, they're not having anything to do. Duck! Quick! Then his father was diving under a lifter truck that stood empty on the dock. The private police were scattering for cover, and an auto cannon began pom-poming. Khan took one quick look in the direction in which it was firing, saw an air-car that had broken through the police line and was rushing toward them, and dived under the lifter after his father. As he did, he saw a missile flash out from one of the gunboats like a thrown knife. Then he huddled beside his father and put his arms over his head. He felt the heat and shock of the explosion, and, an instant later, heard the roar. When nothing immediately disastrous happened, after he had counted fifteen seconds, he stuck his head out and looked up. The gunboat was struggling to regain her equilibrium, and the aircar had vanished in a fireball. They both emerged, straightening. His father was brushing himself with his hands, and saying something about always having to duck under something when he had a new suit on. Robot control, probably. Could have been launched from anywhere in town. Why, no. Your mother and Flora aren't speaking to either of us any more. Pity, of course. 
but I'm glad they're in Litchfield. It's a little healthier there." They walked to the slim recon car and climbed in, pulling the door shut after them. Wade Lucas was waiting for them at the controls. "'There, you see,' he began, as soon as he had the car lifting, "'what I've been telling you? We'll have to stop this.' "'Con, meet our new partner.' I told him everything you told me, out on the mall, the day you came home. I had to. His father hastened to add. He'd figured most of it out for himself. The only thing to do was admit him to the lodge and give him the oath. I didn't know about General Travis. I didn't even know he was still alive, Lucas said. But the rest of it was pretty obvious, once I stopped jumping to conclusions and did a little thinking. You know, ever since I came here, I've been preaching to these people to stop looking for Merlin and do something to help themselves. You're smarter than I am, Con. Instead of opposing them, you're guiding them." Did you tell Flora? Lucas shook his head. I tried to explain what you're trying to do, but she wouldn't listen. She just told me I'd gotten to be as big a crook as you two. He had the car up fifty thousand putting it into a wide circle around the city. He locked the controls and got out his cigarettes. "'Rod, we've got to stop this. You were just lucky this time. Some of these days your luck's going to run out.' "'How can we stop?' Con demanded. "'Tell them the truth. They'd lynch us and then go hunting for Merlin.' "'Worse than that. It'd be a smash worse than the one when the war ended.' I was only ten then, but I can remember that very plainly. We can't stop it, and we wouldn't dare stop it if we could." "'What's been going on here, in the last month?' Con asked. "'I've been too busy to keep in touch. I know there's been rioting, and these crackpot sects, but I think this is personal to us. There have been some ugly things happening. There were four attempts to burglarize our offices. I told you about some of the other stuff, the microphones we found and so on. The worst thing was Lucy Nocero, my secretary. She just vanished a couple of weeks ago. Three days later, the police found her wandering in a park, a complete imbecile. Somebody who either didn't know how to use one, or didn't care what happened, had used a mind-probe on her. It's twenty to one she'll never recover. It's this Storacenda financial crowd, Wade Lucas said. They had things all their own way, till Alpha Interplanetary was organized. Now they're getting shoved into the background, and they don't like it. They're making more money than they ever did, and they just love it, Rodney Maxwell said. I'd think it was either Jake Vykoven or Sam Murchison. Murchison, Lucas hooted. Why, he's nobody. Federation Minister-General, all the authority of the Terran Federation and nothing to enforce it with. He doesn't have a position here. He has a disease, sleeping sickness. He certainly doesn't believe there is a Merlin, does he? Con asked. I don't know what he believes, but he's getting to be Clem Zeref's opposite number. He thinks this whole thing's a plot against the Federation. It's a good thing Clem didn't get around to repainting his combat vehicles black and green, the way he did the home guard stuff at Litchfield. I'd be more likely to think it was Vykhoven. Could be, 
or it could be the Armageddonists, or human supremacy. I am ashamed to say that this Heil Merlin cybernarchist gang are friendly to us. Or it could be some of the banking crowd, or some of these rival space companies. Barton Massara is trying to find out. Well, we have some of Wade's pet suspects at Interplanetary Building now. There has been a meeting going on for the last week to partition the Alpha Gartner system. The Interplanetary Building had been a medium-class residence hotel at the time of the war. Junior staff officers and civilian technicians and their families had lived there. It had been vacant ever since the disastrous outbreak of peace. Now it had a big new Florilite sign, and housed the offices of all the Maxwell companies. There was a truculent display of anti-vehicle weapons on the top landing stage, and more Bart Massera private police. They looked even more villainous than the ones at the spaceport. Khan recalled having heard that most of the Blackie Paralis gang had been discharged for lack of evidence. He wondered how many of them had been hired with Barton Massera. The meeting was in a big conference room, six floors down. It had been going on uninterrupted for days, with all the interested company's representatives standing watch and watch around the clock. Lester Dawes and Morgan Gatworth and Lorenzo Minardis were there for L.E. and S. Transcontinent and Overseas was represented. There were people from Alpha Interplanetary, and bankers and financiers, and people from the companies building the two ships at the spaceport. And J. Fitzwilliam Sturber, the lawyer. And reporters, phoning stories in and getting audiovisual interviews of anybody who would hold still long enough. They converged in a rush as Khan and his father and Lucas came in. No statement, gentlemen, Rodney Maxwell shouted above the babble of their questions. When we have anything to release, it will be released to all of you. Jackmont and Nichols had already arrived. Lucas went to them and began talking about stevedores and lifters to get off the cargoes from the ships. Khan hastened to join them. The scanning and mining equipment aboard the Helen Oloy, he said. That shouldn't be unloaded here. We'll take the ship out to Force Command and unload it there. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw a lurking reporter snatch the handphone off his radio and begin talking. It would be stated authoritatively that Merlin was at Force Command and would be uncovered as soon as special equipment from Koshai arrived. Everybody at the long table was shouting at everybody else. The Jurgen and Janico companies wanted to buy ships from Koshai Exploitation and Development. The Alpha Interplanetary Director, who was also a Vice President of Transcontinent and Overseas, opposed that. Another director of AI, who was also board chairman of Koshai Exploitation and Development, wanted to sell ships to anybody who had the price. The transcontinent and overseas man was calling him a traitor to the company. And one of the stockbrokers, who was also a vice president of Tri-System Investments and a director of Tri-System and Interstellar Space Lines, was wanting to know which company and a banker who was stockholder in all the companies was shouting that they were all a gang of crooks, and J. Fitzwilliam Sturber was declaring that anybody who called him a crook could continue the discussion through seconds. Khan suddenly realized that dueling had never been illegal on Poitem. 
He wondered how many duels this meeting was going to hatch. The next afternoon the Helen O'Loy was unloaded, all but the mining equipment. Khan and Eves Jackmont and Charlie Gatworth and a few others took her out to force command. They were met by Clem Zeriff's armed airboats two hundred and fifty miles from the Mesa, and they found the place in more of a state of siege than when the Badlands had been full of outlaws. A lot of heavy armament seemed to have been moved in from Barathrum spaceport, and Zeriff had more men and firepower than he had ever commanded during the System States War. If Minister-General Murchison was convinced that the Merlin excitement was a cover for some seditious plot against the Federation, this ought to give him food for thought. There was still work, mostly boring lateral shafts for echo-shots, going on at the Butte, under the relay station. That was Liebert, who was still insisting that that was where Merlin was buried. There was also some work on top of the Mesa, by those who were convinced that that was where Merlin was to be found. Kurt Fawzi was taking the lead in that. Franz Veltrin and Dolph Kelton sided with Liebert, and Fawzi's office clique had split into two factions. Judge Ledoux was maintaining strict impartiality, as befitted his judicial position. "'Why hasn't your father gotten those detectives of his to work on this fake preacher?' Zaref wanted to know when he and Tom Brangwen were able to talk to Kahn alone. "'Well, they've been busy,' Kahn said, "'trying to keep him alive, for one thing. You heard about the robo-bomb somebody launched at us the day we brought the ships in, didn't you?' "'Yes, and we heard about the Nocero girl, too,' Brangwen said. "'But hasn't it ever occurred to you or your dad that this fellow that calls himself Liebert might be mixed up with the gang that did that?' You suspect him, too? Brangwen nodded. I took a few audio-visuals of him, when he didn't know it. I sent them to some different law enforcement people over in Morven, where he says he comes from. They never saw him before, and couldn't find anybody who did. Well, he just doesn't have a police record, then. He says he's a preacher. Preachers don't go off in the woods by themselves to preach— they get up in pulpits, in front of a lot of people. Those towns over in Morven are small enough for everybody to have known something about him. He's a fake, I tell you. Let me have copies of those audio-visuals, Tom. I'll see what can be found out about him. I'm beginning to wonder about him myself. I'm sure I've seen him somewhere. When he got back to Storsenda, he found that the marathon conference on the sixth floor down at the interplanetary building had finally come to an end. Everybody seemed satisfied, and apparently nobody was going to have pistols and coffee with anybody else about it. "'We have things fixed up,' his father told him. "'The gang who are building the ship out of four air freighters are chartered as Janico Industries Limited. They are going to specialize in chemical products. The other company has a charter now, too.' They're going to operate on Jurgen and Horvendil. We'll sell them the ships, and Alpha Interplanetary will put on scheduled trips to all three planets, and also Koshai. We're getting along very nicely with them, except that everybody's competing for technicians and skilled labor. We have two hundred more people signed up for Koshai. What you want to do is train as many of them as you can for ship operation. 
Alpha Interplanetary is going to start a training program here at Storsenda. You'd better leave one of your ships for them to work on, and send back as many ships as you can find officers and crews for. We're getting things really started. Yes. The only trouble is, his father frowned, I don't understand these people, Khan. Everybody ought to be making millions out of this by this time next year. But all any of them, even these Storacenda bankers, can talk about is how soon we're going to find Merlin. I wish we could stop that somehow. Listen, I have it. Merlin never was on Poitem. Merlin was a space station a few thousand miles off-planet. There was a crew of operators aboard, and they communicated with Force Command by radio. When the war ended, they took it outside the system and shot off a planet buster inside her. No more Merlin. How would that be? His father shook his head. Wouldn't do. If anybody believed it, which I doubt, they'd just quit. The market would collapse, everybody would be broke, it would be just the end of the war all over again. Khan, we can't let it stop now. We're going too fast to stop. If we tried it, we'd smash up and break our necks. Chapter 18 Jerry Rivas, Mac Vibart, and Luther Chen Wong had been keeping things running on Koshai. Work on the interplanetary ship at Port Carpenter had stopped when the Sickle Mountain ships had been found. It had never been resumed. When Khan returned, he found work started on the Ouroboros II. Some of the two hundred newcomers who came in on the Helena Loy had special skills needed on the hypership. Most of them went with Clyde Nichols and Charlie Gatworth to Sickle Mountain to train as normal space officers and crewmen. Some of them, it was hoped, would later qualify for hyperspace work. Sylvie, who had been one of the star pupils in the computer class, was now helping him with the long lists of needed materials, some of which had to be brought from other places as much as a thousand miles away. Jerry Rivas went back to exploring. Nichols had to drop his space training work temporarily to organize a fleet of air freighters. Usually the men best able to operate them were urgently needed on some job at the construction dock. Ships lifted out almost daily from Sickle Mountain. They tried to get some kind of saleable cargo for each one, without depriving themselves of what they needed for themselves. Some of the ships came back loaded with provisions, and bringing new recruits. For instance, the teaching of physics and mathematics almost stopped at Storsenda College because the professors had been virtually shanghaied. Khan found himself losing touch with affairs on Poitem. Ships had landed on both Janico and Horvendil and were sending back claims to abandoned factories. By that time, they had all the decks into the Orboris too, and he was working aboard, getting the astrogational and hyperspace instruments put in place. The hypership Andromeda was back from the Gamma system. There was close secrecy about what the expedition had found, but the newscasts were full of conjectures about Merlin and the market went into another dizzy upward spiral. Litchfield Exploration and Salvage opened a huge munitions depot, and combat equipment, once almost unsaleable, was selling as fast as it came out. 
The government was buying some, but by no means all of it. Khan, can you come back here to Poitem for a while? his father asked. Things are turning serious. I don't like to talk about it by screen. Too many people know our scrambler combinations. But I wish you were here. He started to object. There were millions, well, a couple of hundred, things he had to attend to. The look on his father's face stopped him. Ship leaving Sickle Mountain tomorrow morning, he said. I'll be aboard. The voyage back to Poitem was a needed rest. He felt refreshed when he got off at Storsenda Spaceport and was met by his father and Wade Lucas in one of the slim recon cars. They greeted him briefly and took the car up and away from the city, where it was safe to talk. Con, I'm scared, his father said. I'm beginning to think there really is a Merlin after all. Oh, come off it. I know it's contagious, but I thought you'd been vaccinated. I'm beginning to think so too, Lucas said. I don't like it at all. You know what that gang who took the Andromeda to Panurge found? They were looking for the plant that fabricated the elements for Merlin, weren't they? Yes, they found it. My Barton Massara operatives got to some of the crew. This place had been turning out material for a computer of absolutely unconventional design. The two computer men they had with them couldn't make head or tail of half of it. And every blueprint, every diagram, every scrap of writing or recording had been destroyed. But they found one thing, a big empty fiber folder that had fallen under something and been overlooked. It was marked, Top Secret, Project Merlin. Project Merlin could have been anything, Khan started to say. No, Project Merlin was something they made computer parts for. Dolph Kelton's research crew at the library here came across some references to Project Merlin, too. For instance, there was a routine division court-martial, a couple of second lieutenants, on a very trivial charge. Force Command ordered the court-martial stopped, and the two officers simply dropped out of the Third Force records. It was stated that they were engaged in work connected with Project Merlin. That's an example. There were a half a dozen things like that. Tell him what Kurt Fawzi and his crew found, Wade Lucas said. Yes. They have a fifty-foot shaft down from the top of the mesa, almost to the top of the underground headquarters. They found something on top of the headquarters. A disc-shaped mass, fifty feet thick and a hundred across, armored in collapsium. It's directly over what used to be Fox Travis's office. That's not a tenth big enough for anything that could even resemble Merlin. Well, it's something. I was out there day before yesterday. They're down to the collapsium on top of this thing. I rode down the shaft in a jeep and looked at it. Look, Con, we don't know what this Project Merlin was. All this lore about Merlin that's grown up since the war is pure supposition. But Fox Travis told me, categorically, that there was no Merlin project, Khan said. The war's been over forty years. It's not a military secret any longer. Why would he lie to me? 
Why did you lie to Kurt Fawzi and the others and tell them there was a Merlin? You lied because telling the truth would hurt them. Maybe Travis had the same reason for lying to you. Maybe Merlin's too dangerous for anybody to be allowed to find. Great goo! Are you beginning to think Merlin is the devil or Frankenstein's monster? It might be something just as bad. Maybe worse. I don't think a man like Fox Travis would lie if he didn't have some overriding moral obligation to. And we know who's been making most of the trouble for us, too, Lucas added. Yes, Rodney Maxwell said, we do. And sometime I'm going to invite Clem Zareff to kick my pants seat. Sam Murchison, the Terran Federation Minister General. How did you get that? Barton Macera got some of it. They have an operative planted in Murchison's office. And some of our banking friends got the rest. This Human Supremacy League is being financed by somebody. Every so often, their treasurer makes a big deposit at one of the banks here, all Federation currency, big denomination notes. When I asked them to, they started keeping a record of the serial numbers and checking withdrawals. The money was paid out at the First Planetary Bank to Mr. Samuel S. Murchison in person. The Armageddonists are getting money, too, but they're too foxy to put theirs through the banks. I believe they're the ones who mind-probed Lucy Nocero. Barton Macera believe, but they can't prove, that human supremacy launched that robo-bomb at us that time at the spaceport. Have you done anything with those audio-visuals of Liebert? Gave them to Barton Macera. They haven't gotten anything yet. So we have to admit that Clem wasn't crazy after all. What do you want me to do? Go out to Force Command and take charge. We have to assume that there may be a Merlin. We have to assume that it may be dangerous. And we have to assume that Kurt Fawzi and his covey of Merlinolators are just before digging it up. Your job is to see that whatever it is doesn't get loose. The trouble was, if he started giving orders around Force Command, he'd stop being a brilliant young man and become a half-baked kid, and one word from him and the older and wiser heads would do just what they pleased. He wondered if the pro-Liebert and anti-Liebert factions were still squabbling. Maybe, if he went out of his way to antagonize one side, he'd make allies of the other. He took the precaution of screening in first. Kurt Fawzi, with whom he talked, was almost incoherent with excitement. At least he was reasonably sure that none of Clem Zareff's trigger-happy mercenaries would shoot him down coming in. The well, fifty feet in diameter, went straight down from the top of the mesa. As the headquarters had been buried under loose rubble, they'd had to vitrify the sides going down. He let down into the hole in a jeep, and stood on the collapsing roof of whatever it was they had found. It wasn't the top of the headquarters itself. The micro-ray scanning showed that. It was a drum-shaped superstructure, a sort of underground penthouse. And there they were stopped. You didn't cut collapsium with a cold chisel, or even an atomic torch. He began to see how he was going to be able to take charge here.
"'You haven't found any passage leading into it?' he asked, when they gathered in Fozzie's, formerly Fox Travis's, office. "'Niffelheim, no. If we had, we'd be inside now,' Tom Brangwen swore. "'And we've been all over the ceiling in here, and we can't find anything but vitrified rock and then the collapsium shielding.' "'Sure.' There are collapsium cutters at Port Carpenter on Koshai. They do it with cosmic rays. But collapsium will stop cosmic rays, Zareph objected. Stop them from penetrating, yes. A collapsium cutter doesn't penetrate, it abrades. It throws out a rotary beam and then works like a grinding wheel or a buzzsaw. Well, could you get one down that hole? Judge Ledoux asked. He laughed. No, the thing is rather too large. In the first place, there's a full-sized power reactor and a mass-energy converter. With them, you produce negamatter atoms with negatively charged protons and positive electrons, positrons. Then you have to bring them into contact with normal positive matter. That's done in a chamber the size of a 50-gallon barrel, made of collapsium and weighing about a 100 tons. Then you have to have a pseudograv field to impart rotary motion to your cosmic ray beam, and the generator door that would lift ten ships the size of the Lester Dawes. Then you need another fifty to a hundred tons of collapsium to shield your cutting head. The cutting head alone weighs three tons. The rotary beam that does the cutting, he mentioned as an afterthought, is about the size of a silver five-centisol piece. Nobody said anything for a few seconds. Carl Liebert stated that divine power would aid them. Nobody paid much attention. Liebert's stock seemed to have gone bearish since he had found nothing in the butte, and Fozzie had found that whatever it was on top of Force Command. "'Means we're going to dig the whole blasted top off, clear down to where that thing is,' Zareff said. "'That'll take a year.' Oh, no, maybe a couple of weeks after we get started, Khan told them. It'll take longer to get the stuff loaded on a ship and hauled here than it will to get that thing uncovered and opened. He told them about the machines they used in the iron mines on Koshai, and as he talked, he stopped worrying about how he was going to take charge here. He had just been unanimously elected indispensable man. Bless you, young man, Carl Liebert cried. At last, the great computer. Those who come after will reckon this the year zero of the age of regeneration. I will go to my chamber and return thanks in prayer. He's been doing a lot of praying lately, Tom Brangwen remarked after Liebert had gone out. He's moved into the chaplain's quarters, back of the pan-denominational chapel on the fourth level down. Always keeps his door locked, too. Well, if he wants privacy for his devotions, that's his business. Maybe we could all do with a little prayer, Veltrin said. Probably praying to Sam Murchison by radio, Clem Zareff retorted. I'd like to see inside those rooms of his. He called Eve's Jackmont at Port Carpenter after dinner. When he told Jackmont what he wanted and why, the engineer remarked that it was a pity screens couldn't be fitted with olfactory sensors— so he could smell Khan's breath. "'I am not drunk, I am not crazy, and I am not exercising my sense of humor. 
I don't know what Fozzie and his gang have here, but if it isn't Merlin, it's something just as hot. We want at it soonest, and we'll have to dig a couple of hundred feet of rock off it and open a collapsium can. How are we going to get that stuff on a ship? Anything been done to that normal space job we started since I saw it last? Can you find engines for it? And is there anything about those mining machines or the cutter that would be damaged by space radiation or reentry heat? Eve's Jackmont was silent for a good deal longer than the interplanetary time lag warranted. Finally, he nodded. I get it, Con. We won't put the things in a ship. We'll build a ship around them. No, that stuff can all be hauled open to space. They use things like that at space stations and on asteroids and all sorts of places. We'll have to stop work on Ouroboros, though. Let Ouroboros wait. We are going to dig up Merlin, and then everybody is going to be rich and happy and live happily forever after. Jackmont looked at him, silent again for longer than the usual five and a half minutes. You almost said that with a straight face. After all, Jackmont hadn't been cleared yet for the awful truth about Merlin. But, like his daughter, he'd been doing some guessing. I wish I knew how much of this Merlin stuff you believe. So do I, Eves. Maybe after we get this thing open, I'll know. To give himself a margin of safety, Jackmont had estimated the arrival of the equipment at three weeks. A week later, he was on screen to report that the skeleton ship, they had christened her the Thing, and when Khan saw screen views of her he understood why, was finished and the collapsium cutter and two big mining machines were aboard. Evidently, nobody on Koshai had done a stroke of work on anything else. Sylvie's coming along with her, so are Jerry Rivas and Anse Dawes and Ham Matsui and Gomez and Karanja and four or five others. They'll be ready to go to work as soon as she lands and unloads, Jackmont added. That was good. They were all his own people, unconnected with any of the Merlin-hunting factions at Force Command. In case trouble started, he could rely on them. Well, dig out some shooting irons for them, he advised. They may need them here. Depending, of course, on what they found when they opened that collapsium can on top of Force Command, and how the people there reacted to it. The thing took a hundred and seventy hours to make the trip. Conditions in the small shielded living quarters and control cabin were apparently worse than on the Harriet Barn on her second trip to Koshai. Everybody at Force Command was anxious and excited. Carl Liebert kept to his quarters most of the time, as though he had to pray the ship across space. At the same time, reports of the near completion of Ouroboros II were monopolizing the newscasts, to distract public attention from what was happening at Force Command. Cargo was being collected for her. Instead of washing their feet in brandy, next year people would be drinking water. Lorenzo Minardis had emptied his warehouse of everything over a year old. So had most of the other distillers up and down the Gordon Valley. Melon and tobacco planters were talking about breaking new ground and increasing their cultivated acreage for the next year. Agricultural machinery was in demand and bringing high prices. 
So were stills and tobacco factory machinery. It began to look as though the Maxwell plan was really getting started. It was decided to send the hypership to Baldur on her first voyage. That was Wade Lucas's suggestion. He was going with her himself, to recruit scientific and technical graduates from his alma mater, the University of Paris on Baldur, and from the other schools there. Kahn was enthusiastic about that, remembering the so-called engineers on Koshai, running around with a monkey wrench in one hand and a textbook in the other, trying to find out what they were supposed to do while they were doing it. Poitem had been living for too long on the leavings of wartime production. Too few people had bothered learning how to produce anything. The thing finally settled onto the mesa top. It looked like something from an old picture of the construction work on one of the Terran space stations in the first century. Immediately, every piece of contragravity equipment in the place converged on her. Men dangled on safety lines hundreds of feet above the ground, cutting away beams and braces with torches. The two giant mining machines, one after the other, floated free on their own contragravity and settled into place. The thing lifted, still carrying the collapsium cutting equipment, and came to rest on the brush-grown flat beyond, out of the way. If Eve's jackmot had overestimated the time required to get the equipment loaded and lifted off from Koshai, Khan had been over-optimistic about the speed with which the top of the mesa could be stripped off. Digging away the rubble with which the pit had been filled, and even the solid rock around it, was easier than getting the stuff out of the way. Farm scows came in from all over, as fast as they and pilots for them could be found. The rush to get brandy and tobacco to Storsenda had caused an acute shortage of vehicles. One by one, the members of the old Fozzie's office gang came drifting in. Lorenzo Menardis, Morgan Gatworth, Lester Dawes, None of them had any skills to contribute, but they brought plenty of enthusiasm. Rodney Maxwell came whizzing out from Storsenda now and then to watch the progress of the work. Of all the crowd, he and Khan watched the two steel giants strip away the tableland with apprehension instead of hope. No, there was a third. Carl Liebert had stopped secluding himself in his quarters. He still talked rapturously about the miracles Merlin would work, but now and then Kahn saw him when he thought he was unobserved. His face was the face of a condemned man. The Ouroboros II was finished. The whole planet saw, by screen, the ship lift out, watched from the ship the dwindling away of Koshai, and saw Poitem grow ahead of her. Twelve hours before she landed, Work at Force Command stopped. Everybody was going to Storacenda. Sylvie, whose father would command her on her voyage to Baldur, Morgan Gatworth, whose son would be first officer and astrogator, everybody. Except Carl Liebert. Then I'm not going either, Clem Zeroff decided. Somebody's got to stay here and keep an eye on that snake. No, nor me, Tom Brangwen said and if he starts praying again, I'm going to go and pray along with him. Khan stayed, too, and so did Jerry Revis and Anne Stawes. 
They watched the newscast of the liftout a week later. It was peaceful and harmonious. Everybody, regardless of their attitudes on Merlin, seemed agreed that this was the beginning of a new prosperity for the planet. There were speeches. The bands played Genji Gartner's body and the spaceman's hymn. And, at the last, when the officers and crew were going aboard, Khan saw his sister Flora clinging to Wade Lucas's arm. She was one of the small party who went aboard for a final farewell. When she came off, along with Sylvie, she was wiping her eyes, and Sylvie was comforting her. Seeing that made Khan feel better, even than watching the ship itself lift away from Storacenda. End of chapter 18